1: Uh, Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, let's talk a little zoning, planning, city planning, urban planning, all kinds of planning, or more specifically, the lack thereof, and then you do some planning to try to make up for the non-planning, which makes it even worse. This is the guy to talk about it. He's actually got a whole book out about it. We'll talk about it in just a minute. Uh, He is a graduate of Rutgers. He's been doing all kinds of media on this. I'm excited to talk about this book because it really is an important topic that actually affects just about everybody, one way or the other. Nolan Gray joining us. How are you, sir? Thank you so much for the time today. Well, thank you for
2: having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Fantastic. We usually don't let Rutgers people come on unsupervised, but we'll make an <laughs> exception for you, my friend. Sorry, I'm, I'm a WVU guy. The old grudges die hard. Oh, well, it's even worse. Every conference. I
2: mean, in my heart of hearts, I'm a Kentucky fan, so um, oh. even even worse <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, Rutgers doesn't give you a lot to inspire loyalty from an athletics perspective, uh, yeah, I- but uh, I, I do bleed blue.
1: People that don't know, a huge amount of WVU's enrollment actually comes from New Jersey. So that's part of the end joke of that. Uh, Not that anybody cares about Uh. it. Yeah. Uh, Let's start with some nomenclature because here's the problem with things like this is they get buzzwordy online really fast, especially in social media and people have their little clicks and they'll talk about, you know, affordable housing or they'll talk about zoning. Let's take zoning and break it down because that's going to mean different things to different people urban folks, they hear zoning, they're going to start thinking, oh, uh, development, maybe urban blight, maybe gentrification. Uh, Suburban folks, they hear uh, zoning, they start thinking, oh, they're going to tear down houses and build strip malls. A rural person may never have dealt with zoning and not have any idea what it is other than that thing people argue about on Facebook. Just deal with the nomenclature, break it down for a little bit, what we're actually dealing with when it comes to zoning.
2: Right. So so zoning is a system of regulation that we have in cities, suburbs, and some rural contexts that does two things. Uh, the first is it tells you what uses are allowed on every single parcel in a city. Uh, so broadly speaking, that's you know residential, commercial, industrial. But then within each of those categories, there are subcategories. So in some residential areas, you are not legally allowed to build an apartment. In others, uh you maybe can legally build townhouses, but not a duplex. Uh in about 95% of the typical US metropolitan area, it's illegal to build anything other than a single family home, a detached single family home in a residential area. Uh, We'll talk about that, how that ties into housing affordability issues. The second thing that zoning does is it places uh, strict limits on density. So it tells you what you can build and then how much of that you can build, how much floor area you can build in maybe a commercial development, or how many units you can build. In a residential development, and you know, as is probably implied by the by the uh, title of the book, I tend to think a lot of these standards are arbitrary, uh, and they've played a role in in, in making uh, U.S. cities uniquely dysfunctional.
1: Yeah, uh, that's called a segue. We call it "Arbitrary Lines: How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It." That's Nolan Gray's book. We're going to link it in the show notes. Make sure you buy the book and read its entirety. Let's start right there, though. Um, Arbitrary line. Here's here's a problem we have where it's a language problem, because we keep talking about government and zoning and regulations as if there's these things that drop out of the either. No, these are government things, but there's people behind there making those decisions, which means good, bad or indifferent. You get the biases of those people. You get the experience level of those people and you get the competence level of those people demystified a little bit, because I think that's part of the problem when we deal with something like zoning is it's like, oh, well, somebody somewhere is doing that. No, there's people doing this and to really understand the problem you got to understand the people that are making that decision right
2: no that's exactly right i mean i think the way that zoning traditionally certainly was framed was okay let's get all the smartest guys in the room and come up with a master plan that's going to control every every little detail for what you can and can't do on every single lot in a metropolitan area over the next um, you know 50 years right uh, so it's, it's very kind of very kind of this mid-century modern kind of idea of you know we can we can just get the elites all together and solve this problem, um, and deal with problems like incompatible neighbors or deal with problems like coordinating growth with new infrastructure investment. I think exactly. I think you made this point very well. Um, it doesn't end up working out exactly that way. Uh, certain biases come into the picture. Uh, people start using uh, some of these rules uh, as a way to maybe uh, suppress new construction. If I'm a, for example, if I'm a, a property owner, right? If I own, uh, some office floor area, it's in my interest to prevent other people from building more of it. So the price just keeps going up. Or if I own uh, residential property in a community, right? It's at least partly to my benefit to block new properties from getting built, uh, that increases the value of my asset. Uh, and that's kind of this dysfunctional flow that we've gotten into in many cities. And then of course, uh, it's been used as a tool for segregation. Uh, of course, in the US context, both on the basis of race but also income. If you can say, hey, um, if you want to build a home in this neighborhood, you have to have at least two acres of land, uh, even though the market might sustain maybe 5,000 square foot lots. If you have the power to say, you know, uh, set standards like that, you have the power to determine who can and can't live in any given neighborhood. And so, what you see in many US cities is these rules have been uh, used to uh, make housing. Uh, much more, afford- uh, much more unaffordable and have also been used to segregate uh, cities, both on race and class.
1: Yeah. Nolan Gray joining us. Here's the thing. There's certain things in our parlance when it talks about the other side of the tracks is a good one. And people may not realize that come- that's based in facts, though, because it was like, oh, well, that side of the train tracks isn't desirable property. This side. A lot of this goes back to some basic things like property rights, The tax base thing, that's a huge part of zoning. Talk about that for just a second, because those are some of the elements that go into it that are kind of fundamental. But once we start talking about affordable housing and stuff, we kind of forget about those basic building blocks. So just touch on that real quick.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I so in the book I sketch out I think what are the four big things that have gone wrong with zoning. Uh the, the first is the they it's it's made housing much more expensive by making it harder to build and forcing it to be more expensive than it might otherwise have been. It's made it harder for people to move to high opportunity areas, maybe thriving cities that are growing. Uh it's uh made it easier for for uh, bad actors to Uh, in segregation in U.S. cities. And then it's forced cities to take on maybe a more sprawling form that they might otherwise have. And we can get into all of those. Uh, But I think you're exactly right. I mean, this is an element of the book that I actually don't touch on very directly. uh, But the property rights issue, right, is that um, zoning, basically puts incredibly strict parameters on what everybody can and can't do with their property. You know, So right now, one of the issues that we're scrambling to deal with, of course, is, well, we need to allow people to actually build maybe something like an accessory dwelling unit or a granny flat in their backyard. That should be legal. In many US contexts, that's illegal. Or uh, you should be allowed to operate a home-based business out of your home, right? Of course, over the last two years, many millions of Americans have started working from home, but in many contexts, zoning actually makes that illegal. Of course, that's a that's a major property rights uh, concern that uh, you know, I think many people rightly have.
1: And before we get into the details of this, since you just mentioned it, I do wanna ask you about it is how much of this, you, you use the term mid-century thinking, you just talked about the COVID pandemic where people really started embracing technology out of necessity. I think it changed a lot of people's views on things how much of this is not even the math of it or the politics or the policy? How much of it is just changing generational thought on how we address this issue? Because there seems to be, I know post COVID, everybody's kind of looking at everything all of a sudden, because when you're locked in your house, you start thinking about your house, let's just put it on a basic Mm -hmm. human level. How much of this is just a generational thought change that we're in the middle of, and we maybe don't have the nomenclature and the policy to match it all yet?
2: Uh, that's a really great point. I think there's two elements here. I think this was part of a broader project of making the detached single family home the norm. Uh, and in the context of maybe post-World War II, that was fine. We had a lot of land that was very cheap. But now a starter home doesn't look like a detached single family home on a maybe a 5,000 square foot lot in many U.S. cities. In many U.S. cities, a starter home might look like a townhouse or it might look like half of a duplex. Uh, and those are types of houses that we actually make illegal to build today. Land prices have just gone up so much that that, that old uh, Levittown-style 5,000-square-foot lot uh, just is not economical. Um, and two, I think also zoning has entrenched, I think, a cultural norm of this idea of your neighborhood should never change, right? You move into a neighborhood, and when you buy a home in a neighborhood, you're buying uh, some collective right into that neighborhood, never, ever changing. You know, healthy healthy neighborhoods and healthy uh, communities are, are, are constantly changing. Right. And the way I frame it to people is like, you can either have all the buildings in your neighborhood remain the same forever. Uh, or, uh, you can have, uh, you know, the relative demographic composition of your community change. Right. So you see so many neighborhoods in a place like California where I am now, where they haven't built any new housing for the past 50 years. So in one sense, you know, they look the same, but in another sense, no young family can afford to buy a home there. There's no children there. Uh, it's mostly, folks who are retired empty nesters their their family their kids can't afford to live in that community so they move to a place like uh nevada or arizona uh and the yeah the built form of the neighborhoods remains the same which was the purpose of zoning but their community for all intents and purposes has collapsed and and this was i think this has been a california problem for a long time but what we're seeing it now increasingly is spread uh to places in the mountain west or places in the south
1: yeah all the places those folks are going to get away from the problem to start with, ironically enough. Nolan Gray joining us. You bring up something I want to ask you about because it just kind of triggered a thought in my head, though. This is not going to be a one size fits all problem because what is affordable housing in a city? Like you said, maybe multifamily, maybe uh, apartments that are affordable, maybe townhouse style stuff. You go out more rurally like where I'm from. Look, I lived in the double wide until I was 11. That's affordable housing where I come from. You get a trailer, right? this is not going to look the same everywhere. Is this something where we need to have a set of principles in place and then be a little bit flexible in the application thereof?
2: Yeah, you know, I think one way to approach this issue is to have more state level. So the way we do zoning today is every single municipality gets to write their own zoning code, basically de novo. Uh, So they can come up with their own unique standards. And this makes the whole system very, very complicated. And it also makes it to where maybe a developer in one city can't necessarily build the next city over without hiring an attorney and a local planner and all these other things that increase costs. Um, But so one thing you can do is you can set sort of baseline state standards to say, as, as a few states have now done to say, okay, look, Statewide, if you're in a residential district, uh, you can build an accessory dwelling unit. Uh, Statewide, uh, you can operate a home-based business. Uh, Statewide, local governments can't force you to build uh, giant parking lots and giant parking garages that don't make any economic sense. Um, And then you say to local governments, hey, within these broad parameters, you can still plan your city, but the most extreme abuses of, of zoning, of course, we're not going to tolerate.
1: Yeah. Nolan Gray joining us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to dig into this book. He has three cities. He uses examples. Very diverse cities. Very different cities. Very different parts of the country. Why did he pick those three? What does they talk about zoning? Also going to get into the arbitrary lines. This great book from Nolan Gray. He's joining us on Hertel and we'll continue with him right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We are talking to Nolan Gray. He's got a great book out on zoning and urban planning and city planning. How zoning broke the American city and how to fix it. Arbitrary Lines. Great title, by the way. Love it. Okay, let's dig into this a little bit. You, The core of the book, you took three cities as living examples. These are cities most people would know just on name. They're very diverse cities. They're different parts of the country. Why did you pick these three cities as your examples?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, so the main example that I look at in the book is, is Houston, right? So, you know, Houston is unique uh, in that it's a uh, it's the it's fourth largest American city, right? And on track to be the third largest American city. Uh, it's incredibly affordable, uh, despite, a, you know, a few decades of just exponential population and income growth. Uh, and it's also unique in that it's the only major American city that does not have zoning. So what does this mean? This means that Houston doesn't have... the the city-wide system of regulation uh, that says what uses uh, are allowed on every single property and at what density. Of course, they have a whole bunch of other rules to deal with things like nuisances or uh, preventing development in environmentally sensitive areas, uh, or they even engage in whole bunch of stuff that people generally think of as city planning, like parks planning or streets planning, but they don't do this sort of weird game that every other city plays where they engage in a system of 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 citywide land use regulation uh, through zoning. And so, you know, what gets you is actually a relatively successful city. Uh, They have, as I say, they have other mechanisms for engaging in city planning, uh, but they've been able to remain relatively affordable as, you know, more zoned cities, of course, now struggle with these issues.
1: And this isn't just a social and political and economic issue, though. We saw in Houston, unfortunately, when you have a natural disaster with poor zoning, this stuff can actually be deadly because they went out and, you know, they're building a lot of stuff, maybe on land that wasn't really meant to be built on, that wasn't properly zoned. That actually had a huge effect in the city of Houston also.
2: Well, so it's tough. I mean, a lot of the wetlands development in metropolitan Houston was happening in the suburbs, which in most cases have conventional zoning. Uh, And then there are separate or. Wetlands development is generally dealt with through separate ordinances, right? So you'll have you'll have rules that say what you can and can't build in wetlands, uh, and of course, you know, I mean, like that was separate of zoning, and and Houston was a little too callous about that going into, for example, a uh, uh, Hurricane Harvey, uh, but. Um, yeah I mean I, I actually not having zoning in Houston is probably a huge asset in the recovery period right so so Houston actually experienced population growth uh the year that the hurricane hit uh and it's partly because it's so easy to rebuild in in Houston right it, you know as it, properties that get destroyed you can very you can fairly easily rebuild them uh and then build them to higher standards than you could. Maybe in a place like Los Angeles or San Francisco, where, of course, there would be much stricter regulatory rigmarole. And the actual regulations make a lot of what currently exists illegal. Uh, Houston, of course, doesn't have all those problems. So it's very easy to build and it's very easy for the city to adapt and change over time.
1: You took a couple of cities that um, maybe not as famous as Houston, which I think a lot of people will be shocked at how big Houston is. That it's the fourth largest city and growing. Um, you talk about Minneapolis, you talk about Fayetteville, you talk about Hartford. Uh, Minneapolis is, of course, is a big metro, Fayetteville, Hartford, more kind of maybe mid-level to large cities. Why those cities? What got your attention there?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, all across the country, cities are contending with liberalizing these regulations, right? Because there's broad recognition now that these rules are standing in the way of letting cities adapt. Uh, And and grow over time. Uh, So Minneapolis, of course, uh, abolished a a policy called single family zoning. This is what I was referencing earlier. Uh, These are rules that basically make it illegal to build townhouses or duplexes or small apartment buildings in the vast majority of most U.S. cities. Uh, Minneapolis scrapped those rules uh, and uh, they're still tinkering with them. Uh, But it's starting to allow for more of this infill housing development. So you can get smaller, more affordable housing typologies in existing neighborhoods, leveraging existing infrastructure, uh, and that helps to keep the city affordable. I like the example of of, of Fayetteville, Arkansas, uh, because I think a lot of people tend to think like, oh, okay, you know, big cities have these problems, big cities are going to do zoning reform, but maybe a mid-sized college town like Fayetteville, that's not really relevant to us. I'm from Lexington, Kentucky, which is a very, very similar context to Fayetteville, and you look at Fayetteville and they've said, okay, hey, you know, we're going to get, we we actually want more infill development. We want to legalize those main street uh, developments, those main street storefronts that so often in many small towns just sit empty. Uh, let's get rid of some of the rules that, that block uh, entrepreneurs in our community from leveraging some of those properties and revitalizing some of our streets. And one of the rules that they, they zeroed in on were parking mandates, which say, if you want to operate a shop or if you want to build uh, maybe a small apartment building, you have to build a huge parking lot. Right. I mean, this is why, you know, you, you drive on any major corridor in America and there are these huge empty parking lots, parking lots that are so big, that they don't even fill up on Black Friday. If they don't fill up on Black Friday, uh, they probably don't need to be built that big. Uh, But so Fayetteville said, you know, we're going to scrap some of these rules. Uh, Hartford, of course, in Connecticut, similar story, right? This is much more of a, a Rust Belt dynamic, you know, a city that's experienced population loss. But they're liberalizing a lot of these rules, too, to say, hey, we want people to come back into our community. We want people to invest and build. Let's get rid of some of the regulatory barriers to people doing that.
1: One of the keys to the book that you really wanted to focus on was there's been all these different ideas and thoughts about zoning and urban planning and city planning over the years. You wanted to try to bring them kind of together into a little bit more of one cohesive thing to try to understand the problem. Just for a layperson that doesn't know all the nomenclature, maybe doesn't know a lot about zoning. What's two or three of the things that they should know if they go to, like, discuss this online with their friends or on social media? They, I'm sure they see the trends every now and then, you know, something will pop off on Twitter or Facebook. What's the couple things they should be looking for in those discussions that should really pique their interest and like, OK, this is something I need to pay attention to?
2: That's a really great question. I mean, I would say, I, I, I would say first, a very common misunderstanding. Zoning doesn't get anything built. Uh, zoning only stops things from being built, right? So, for example, when you have a policy like single-family zoning and you get rid of it, that doesn't mean that it's no longer legal to build a single-family home. That just means that it's now legal to build things other than single-family homes, right? Uh, so you, you you get this confusion quite a lot. Same with parking mandates. People say, well, we can't get rid of parking mandates because we still need parking in our community. Well, the mandate just says we're not going to force anyone to build it. Uh, if a developer still wants to build this parking or feels it's necessary to lease out or sell a space, uh, he or she will build that parking. A uh, mandate just says the government's not going to force you to do it anymore. Uh, that's the first. The second is I would say, you know, c- consider the, the downstream cost of a lot of these policies, right? I think a lot of people... Um, they maybe support some of these policies and uh, you know concerned about things like community character or maybe extremely concerned about how a, a development's going to change their community uh, the alternative is never for a neighborhood or a community to stay the same, as I was kind of saying earlier, right? If you don't build those additional housing units, your your city's going to change. It's just going to become much more expensive, and working class families are no longer going to be able to afford a home. They're going to have to leave. They're going to have to move away. Your city's going to become less diverse, less dynamic. Uh, you know, if you make it hard for that new store, that new business to open up in a storefront, uh, the alternative might just be that that storefront sits vacant as is so often the case in many U.S. cities. Uh, And consider the downstream costs of a lot of these rules, right? You know, if if we make it hard, if we add rules and layers and extra onerous processes that make it hard to build over time, that just makes it impossible for these cities to grow and remain dynamic over time.
1: Yeah, Nolan Gray joining us. He's the author of Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. Let's talk about that fix it part, because we started this conversation talking about it behind all the zoning and the regular. whether you want to call it? You know, land use regulation, zoning, whatever. There's always going to be people behind these policies. If you go to a post zoning America, what's some of the things you put into place to make sure that the same people problems don't pop up again? Because we know policy is only as good as the people that implement them. What would that look like? What would those steps be to keep some of the human factors from ruining whatever comes after zoning if we did
2: repeal it? yeah so i mean i this is a—I critique zoning but of course i think you still need certain land use regulations absolutely the question is like how should they be structured so i think a few things one is regulate the impacts that people actually care about right so in the current system we say okay we don't want to we don't want a corner grocery coming into this little neighborhood because we're worried that it'll make too much noise and generate too much traffic so we're just going to ban the corner grocery Well, I would say, if you're concerned about the noise and you're concerned about the traffic, regulate that or put prices on that, Um, right? So, you know, we can say, hey, yeah, noisy neighbors are a problem. We're going to have relatively clear rules that are enforced consistently and fairly on noise. Or, yeah, traffic is a problem. Uh, If you're going to put a whole bunch of a, a big giant parking garage on a property, you know, you can pay a fee that, cover some of the costs that you're imposing on neighbors. I think that sort of regulation is completely appropriate. And that's really what people want from land use regulation. They want these impacts to be regulated. I would say the second thing is a recognition of the extent to which a lot of these problems solve themselves, right? So if you look at unzoned contexts like Houston, Uh, you know, the nightmare scenario of an oil refinery opening up in a suburban cul-de-sac, it just doesn't materialize in practice, right? Uh, These are very different uses that wanna be in different places. But then for conflicts that people are concerned about, neighbors are actually very good at coming together and developing emergent solutions to solve these problems, right? So of course people form neighborhood associations that voluntarily opt into certain land use rules for maybe a community where it's like, yeah, we want this to be a, a neighborhood of detached single family homes. People can voluntarily opt into those rules But maybe it's not appropriate for the local government to be adopting and enforcing these rules at the public expense. Um, And then the third, I think, big piece of it is you do need uh, planning work. And and we don't do a very good job of this in the U.S., but you do need people uh, who are stewarding the public realm. You need civil servants doing this work of planning out streets that make sense, planning out parks uh, at regular intervals, planning out where public facilities are going to be. We actually don't do a lot of this work uh, in the U.S. today. And that's why so many U.S. suburbs kind of look like a a, a mess of winding streets and aimless cul-de-sacs and, and power centers. And you have to drive everywhere and you can't walk in any context. Uh, and there's very little mixture of uses. Uh, we can do some of the physical planning work to actually build communities that people like and then say, hey, we're going to plan out the public realm. And then what you do on your private land, uh, we leave up to you.
1: Uh, Nolan Gray's joining us. All right, let's do a real world example to kind of put a bow on this. Everything we've just learned from you that you explained so well that even I understood most of it. There's a couple things I'm gonna have to Google later. Um, let's just take this example because I'm for freedom. I'm generally a free market kind of guy. I want people to expand. I want capitalism to succeed. At the same time, every time I see a strip mall go up, I feel a part of my soul dying because it's just like, look, I'm happy people are working. I'm glad people are getting their businesses in. I hope the rent ain't too high, which is the case in a lot of those. I think a lot of people feel that way, though. It's like, hey, they have their principles on these things. But then in the real world, when you start building a building somewhere where they go every day, maybe it's a school, maybe it's where they shop. More and more of those are usually pretty close together. That's a common feeling with people, though. You see it over and over again. How do they start squaring those two things of like, well, I want affordable housing and I want, you know, good urban planning. But I also want things like I like. How do we square those things out in a pluralistic, diverse society? Because that's just a real question, because people are still going to feel that way, even if they have the principles and belief system. Right. So how do we bridge that?
2: That is a real challenge. I mean, I would say uh, to your specific example, the strip mall, I mean, the strip mall is the ultimate product of zoning, right? I mean, you you, you basically say we're not going to allow small commercial that's integrated into neighborhoods, it's going to have to be in one place, and it's going to have to have a ton of parking, and it's going to have to be set back 50 feet from the street, right? The strip mall is is a creature of, of zoning. And I would say just to kind of expand that out, I think a lot of the development that people see that they just don't like that they see maybe as draining, uh you know, resources from their community or requires a whole bunch of infrastructure that's very expensive on taxpayers. Uh, a lot of that is downstream of these zoning rules uh, that mandate a very kind of sprawling, low slung, auto-oriented form of development and actually actually criminalizes uh, some of the main streets that, that many communities have that they love, uh, right? So that traditional development of Ground floor shops and then apartments over top. Not everybody wants to live like that, and I respect that. But a lot of Americans do. And if you actually look at the numbers, right, those inner suburban neighborhoods that have a mixture of maybe a duplex next to a single family home, next to some townhouses with a deli on the corner, maybe a barber shop within walking distance, maybe a doctor's office, maybe somebody is uh, uh, a a lady is offering uh, musical lessons out of her home, right? These are the kind of communities that were str- that were strong and resilient and that remain extremely desirable. And they're actually completely illegal to build. Uh, in many U.S. cities today. And I think when you when you sort of make people realize this, it immediately starts to click. The type of neighborhoods that we want uh, so desperately the, the ones when we have them, we cherish them and we we actually put historic overlays on them. But then we say you can't build neighborhoods like that anymore. Uh, zoning, of course, is one of the key barriers uh, to building the types of cities that many people uh, so desperately want.
1: Yeah. And not to bash on the strip malls, but there's ways to do that. Even in suburbia where I know there's a, there's a large development. I got to watch it be built. Cause it was a field when I first moved down there and they, you know, they built the shopping area with the movie theater and the restaurants and all the different various you stuff. And they put the mid level to middle high range homes, single family homes on one side. And then they put the apartment community on the other side, all same developer and both are walkable to the shopping in the middle. There's ways to do this that make, not everybody happy, but a lot of people happy and everybody say what's the key here? Is it politically? Is it policy? Is it a ratio between the two for us that want to advocate with our elected officials, which is where this stuff always goes through and then the money people get involved. So we're real about this. What's the ratio there between policy and politics and just us, you know, frankly giving a damn for lack of a better term, what's the ratio there to make this stuff better?
2: Yeah. I mean, I would say first at the local level, local governments have huge amount of latitude over a lot of these rules, right? So many US cities and suburbs will have a zoning ordinance that was written, you know, 30 to 50 years ago, and we'll have a whole bunch of rules that make this type of desirable uh, infill development illegal. Local governments can amend those rules today, right? Uh, They have a huge amount of power. At the state level, it's appropriate, I think, for state legislators to say, let's put up some guardrails on this, right? Let's allow those accessory dwelling units, let's get rid of the parking mandates, let's reintroduce some flexibility uh, back into the system. I would say, too, in terms of moving away from zoning completely as a concept rather than just amending it, I'd say get some of these other things right. You know, get the nuisance regulation right. Uh, you know, help communities uh, develop their own sets of rules if they want If they want them. Uh, uh, get the physical planning right. And then put zoning back to a vote, right? Ask people, do you want this institution? In some cases, people will. But I think in many cases, people will say, yeah, actually, you know our community is better without these rules that that segregate uses or that just don't allow us to actually build any infill. Uh, and you know once you kind of get to that level, then I think we'll really be able to move past zoning, and, and we'll have a much stronger, more prosperous, more diverse uh, American city on the other side.
1: He's Nolan Gray. The book is Arbitrary Lines: How Zoning Broke the American City and How. To fix it. It's a great book. We've linked to it in the show notes how you can get it, but let folks know anywhere where you would like them to get it. And until we see you again on Herd Tell, which I hope is soon, where they can follow you with your social media, your writing, you're doing media for the book, obviously. It's going to be a big success. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you, my friend.
2: Yeah, well, I'm on Twitter, M Nolan Gray, N O L A N G R A Y. Um, you can follow me there. I'm sharing thoughts on zoning. Uh, yeah, the book's available pretty much everywhere. I'm, I always say to people if you have a local bookstore, uh, that you want to support, go go uh, grab a copy there, ask that they stock it. Uh, you can, of course, get it on Amazon or Bookshop. Uh, easiest way is to order directly from the press, Island Press, uh, or just uh, request that your local library stock a copy. Uh, but uh, there's many ways to get it. we got an audio book coming out uh, shortly. Unfortunately, I'm not the one narrating it. Uh, but uh, yeah, many exciting things. I look forward to hearing from people.
1: Yeah, it's an important topic. It's one that doesn't get as loud as some other stuff, but it probably should because, hey, we've all got to live here and we got to all live together. We should probably do a better job planning that out. Nolan Gray, thank you so much. We'll definitely have you back to talk more because these issues are never going to go away as long as people are living in America, which I hope is for a long, long time. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure being here.
1: Thank you, sir.